class called the, the Colorful Future Church. And what I want to do today and tomorrow is share with you my uh, convictions of why the future of the church is going to be a multi-ethnic church, a diverse church. And I'm going to make a case for that theologically, and I hope I'm going to make a case for it practically. What I'll do today is primarily focus on uh, the theological reasons why I believe this is what the church should be. And tomorrow I'll talk a little bit more about practically what are the uh, challenges of becoming a more multi-ethnic church. Uh, the reality is, I believe, as a matter of obedience and as a matter of expedience, the church must become more intentional about becoming multi-ethnic. And uh, let me give my own city as an example. I preach for a church in Fort Worth, Texas. We're the buckle of the Bible Belt. Uh, historically, we've been what we call a red county. And here's the truth about my city. My city is 49% white. It's 27% Latino or Hispanic. 17% African American, 7% Asian or other. There's not one single ethnic group in my city that comprises over 50% of the city. Not one. Uh, the Hispanic ethnicity is the fastest growing group, not just in my city, but in my state. By 2050, there will be no single ethnicity that is a majority in the United States. It will come much, much quicker in the state of Texas. As a matter of sheer experience, if our mission is to make and grow followers of Jesus, if our mission is to reach our neighbor, if our mission is to be a blessing to the cities where God has placed us, we have no option but to learn how to be multi-ethnic communities of faith. And we'll talk more about that tomorrow. But what I want to do now is just talk about how it is a matter of sheer obedience to the gospel that we intend to be multi-ethnic communities of faith. So a little background on my story. Um, I've lived most of my life in Texas. Uh, while most of my people are not Christian, in fact, when I was born, my grandmother was the only Christian. They would have called themselves Christians. They would have said they believed in God and Jesus. Uh, and they had no problem, my people, uh, reconciling their Christian belief with their racist attitude. And racism was pretty rampant in my family. In fact, uh, they would have insisted that all races can go to heaven. And they would have completely resisted the idea that the races should come together at the same church. And they saw no inconsistency there. Now, when my parents came to faith after I was born, uh, some of that racial residue was in there, not like the rest of the family, but it was still there. And I was raised in a small church of Christ in South Dallas. Uh, we were sectarian. I didn't know it. We were legalistic. I didn't know it. We were racist. I knew it. I knew it by the 
policies of the elders. My father was the deacon of the visitation committee, and he was told, uh, if a black family ever visits our church, you are not to go see them and ask them to come back. I knew it because of the language I would hear and the epithets and the jokes I would hear told by the deacons as they smoked cigarettes between Bible class and regular church. I remember standing by a matriarch in our church. We had a bulletin board, and on that bulletin board there were Polaroid pictures of a missionary we supported in Africa baptizing people in a river. And I heard her say, I wish they wouldn't put those pictures up. I don't like the idea of those. And you can guess what word she used next. Being in heaven with me. And I remember thinking, lady, you've got nothing to worry about. <laughs> and so I'm 16 years old. And I got to preach my first sermon. Now remember, this is a church of 200 people. I preached my first sermon. It was a terrible sermon. It had six points. The third point was racism is sin. There was an emergency elders meeting. <laughs> and I was informed the next week that I would not be allowed to preach there anymore. The only boy that ever grew up in that church and wanted to be a preacher. <laughs> and the only boy ever told who couldn't preach. Uh, and uh, a couple of years after I left for college, that church closed its doors. <laughs> and, and you would say, well, because everyone moved away. I would say, no, it was because God took the candlestick away. We didn't, we didn't deserve to wear the name of Jesus. You see, I, I grew up in a community that was all white. This is the 1970s. Great music, terrible clothes. And uh, something called forced busing came into play. And it was unfair. White kids were not put on buses and sent to black schools. Only black children were put on buses and sent to predominantly white schools, including the school where I started high school. The year before I started high school, the high school I was going to go to was 100% white. My first year, it was 20% black because of forced busing. And when the first bus rolled up, the Priscilla Suns went up. And I experienced as a teenager a phenomenon called white Flight. In two years, my high school went from 20, zero to 40% black. Within five years, my high school had become a completely black high school. Because every family that had lived there five years earlier moved away. And I watched the church, and rather than being a thermostat to speak into that situation and try to Speak to it. We were a thermometer. We just represented it. Everyone moved away. And I remember being very puzzled and concerned and, and bothered by that. The church had no answer to that moment except just to reflect the racism of the culture. And again, everyone I went to church with would have said, all races can go to heaven. They weren't about to sit around a table with people of other races. And I realized that. The problem with the church I was raised in was not the presence of racism. The real problem was the absence of the gospel. 
we didn't preach and live the gospel at the church I was raised in. Now, this is not going to be two days about the sin of racism. Okay, you're already there. You don't need that. You know that everything I just told you is horrific and terrible, and, and you would want no part of a church like that. This is not going to be a two-day class about the reality of systemic injustice and racism. I hope you believe that. You believe in systemic injustice. You, we just pick and choose where we see it. But we all believe there are systems that are evil. Because people are evil and people create systems. What this is going to be for two days is a plea that our future is not to create churches that are colorblind, but color blessed. That we are intentional about creating multi-ethnic churches. And the truth is, in practice, more churches are like the church I was raised in than we want to admit. About 90% or more of churches in our nation are mono-racial. Now, the communities we live in are not, but the churches are. Imagine the outcry if 90% of our universities were moderation or our sports teams. Imagine if 90% of our banks said we will only do business with people of one race. In fact, the church is the only institution in our country where that kind of blatant segregation is allowed by law. American churches, on average, are 10 times more segregated than their local neighborhoods and 20 times more segregated than their nearby schools. And you might be thinking right now, well, people just like to worship with people who are culturally like them. What's wrong with that? And the best way to answer that is to talk about pizza. So <laughs> the CEO of Young, which includes Pizza Hut, got his team together in 2015. Pizza Hut sales were lagging. He put them in a room and said, don't you come out until we come up with a plan to increase our sales. And they came up with a simple plan. Easy beats better. In other words, let's stop trying to convince people our pizza is the best pizza. Because people care about convenience more than they care about quality. Let's tell people there is simply no easier way to get a pizza than to call Pizza Hut. You know what? It worked. We do like convenience more than quality. So, when I was a young preacher in the height of what was then called the church growth movement, there was a principle advocated called the homogeneous principle. They had done their research, they had done their tracking, they said, if you want to grow a church, here's the fastest way to do it. Appeal to a particular people group, and them alone. Because people like to go to church with people like themselves. And guess what? It works. The homogeneous principle works. Mono-ethnic church is so much easier. Multi-ethnic church is so much messier. And we'll talk about that some tomorrow. But the issue shouldn't be what is most 
most in line with the gospel. God does not want separate but equal because it opposes the cross. That is why, we'll talk again more about this tomorrow, but if you notice, nowhere does God endorse the planting of mono-ethnic churches. So when Paul goes out into this diverse world he's said to reach, it would have been so much easier to plant mono-ethnic churches. The reason we have the book of Galatians and the book of Romans is because the churches were struggling with the messiness of multiculturalism. I don't want to eat meat off for two a night. I got no problem with that the way I was raised. What do you mean you're going to observe that special day? That day means nothing to me. How much easier would it have been for Paul to say, now all you Jews, you meet over here in this house and worship Jesus. And all you Gentiles, you meet over here in this house and worship Jesus. And y'all come together once a year at Thanksgiving and have a unity service. <laughs> Paul's understanding of the gospel demanded he choose messy over easy. The way he preached the cross meant there was no other way to be the church. So here's what we're going to do for the next 20 minutes. We're going to do hardcore Bible study. Just get your Bible out. We're literally going to read two chapters of the Bible together. And I hope after we do, you'll never again wonder if God wants a multi-ethnic church. I'm going to give you four principles that are worth writing down or saving. Here's, uh, first, we're going to read Ephesians 2, 1 through 9. Once, you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. All of us used to live that way, following the passion, desires, and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else. But God is so rich in mercy, and he loved us so much. That even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. It is only by God's grace that you have been saved. For he raised us from the dead along with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms because we're united with Christ Jesus. So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness towards us. As shown in all he's done for us who are united with Christ Jesus. God saved you by his grace when you believe. You can't take credit for this. It is a gift from God. Salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. So none of us can boast about it. So here's principle number one. God's grace is the only way to be saved. And anyone who says all religions are basically the same has not studied all religions. The Bible is the only religious book that teaches the impossibility of self-salvation. The gospel is not good advice. It is good news. Because grace is not for the sick. It is for the dead. So what Paul argues here in Ephesians 2, 1-9 is that the true gospel, 
declares that salvation begins with God, it is accomplished completely by God, and results in all the glory going to God. Now, why does this matter with our conversation? Simply, you can't have a right view of race if you have a wrong view of race. And here's why. Racism is a subtle form of legalism because it implies that all do not stand equally in need of Christ's work on the cross. That your ethnicity is it somehow gives you virtue that others lack. Now, you've got to understand, that may seem like, well, duh, this was a huge issue for the early church to work through. The Jewish people understandably thought our ethnicity makes us closer to God. This is why they had such a struggle with the idea that you don't have to be circumcised. How in the world can you understand Jesus if you've never heard about Moses? Yes, we know that Calvary is the open door, but Sinai is the screen door. And so they understandably said over and over to Gentiles, we're not saying you can't become Christians. We're saying you've got to become Jews. We're saying you've got to be circumcised. And the very first and most important church conference ever in Acts 15 was all about this question. What is the gospel that we are going to preach? <clears throat> now imagine if the Pharisees had won that debate. We're going to preach you are saved by faith in Jesus Christ after you've been circumcised. Would you have a gospel that could go into all the world? You know what you'd have today? You'd have the dad dropping the kids and the wife off in the minivan and saying, y'all go to church, I'm going to stay out here and read the paper. <laughs> and so I think one of the most important statements in all the Bible, maybe the most important doctrinal statement in the New Testament, is when Peter, of all people, stood up at that conference and he said in Acts 15, 11, we believe that we are all saved the same way by the undeserved grace of the Lord Jesus. We're all saved the same way. We all receive life the same way by identifying with death of Jesus. So God's grace is the only way to be saved. It starts there. Your ethnicity gives you no head start, no extra virtue in the eyes of God. We were all dead. And a dead person can do nothing to save themselves. It is only the miraculous grace of God. Now, having said that, Paul gets into the real heart of his argument of where he's going. And we're going to read verses 10 through 22. Your Bible may say, His grace has prepared us for the good works He created us to do, right? What are these good works? What is it that grace has prepared us to do? We're all saved the same way. We're God's masterpiece. Prepared for good works. He planned in advance for us to do. What is it? What is the good work God planned for us to do when he saved us by grace? We're about to read what it is. For we're God's masterpiece. 
He's created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things he planned for us long ago. Okay, what are they? What are these good things that God planned for us to do? Don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel, and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you've been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to Him through the blood of Christ. For Christ Himself has brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people when, in His own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with his commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. He brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through you, him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling. For God lives by his spirit. So, here's the second big idea. The cross goes both ways. In other words, Paul is laying out for us how huge the gospel is. Remember, sin is the great Separate. You go back to Genesis 3 in the fall. What happened? Sin separated the soul from God. It separated Adam from the garden. It separated Cain from Abel. So what Paul is doing here is he's declaring the hugeness of Christ's victory on the cross. That Jesus' death destroyed sin's power, not just to separate us from God, but to separate us from each other. And so preaching the cross is more than just an appeal for integration. It is God's move to create reconciliation among all his children. The cross is God's war on walls. Now again, that metaphor was so much more powerful to the original readers. Because if you went to the temple, and Paul is talking about God's building a new temple. But if you went to the temple of Jerusalem, there were walls. There was a wall that said, are you a Gentile? You can go this far. You can't get closer to God than this. In fact, there's a plaque on that wall that says, and if you go past this wall, your death is on your head. And so when Paul says he has torn down the walls, he's making the case that we are all now through the blood of Christ, in the power of the Spirit, able to access equal presence of God. Look again now, verse 14 and 16 from a different translation. Christ himself is our peace. He made both Jewish people and those who were not Jews one 
people. They were separated as if there were a wall between them. But Christ broke down that wall of hate by giving his own body. His purpose was to make the two groups of people become one new people in him. Now let me say that again. What was his purpose on the cross? Because we typically think Jesus went to a cross just so I can get to heaven. And we make the gospel a completely individual and a vertical message. Now look at what he said. Why didn't Jesus go to the cross? His purpose was to make the two groups of people become one new people in him. And in this way make peace. It was also Christ's purpose to end the hatred between the two groups. To make them into one body and to bring them back to God. Christ did all this with his great death on the cross. That's what I mean. The cross goes both ways. It makes us right with God. It makes us right with each other. And if we're not preaching that, we're just preaching a truncated gospel. If the only gospel we preach in our churches is you need to come get saved and baptized so you can go to heaven, we're preaching a truncated gospel. Jesus went to the cross to accomplish more than that. His purpose is not just the cessation of hostility. It is the creation of oneness. And therefore, I'll say a strong statement. You cannot preach the cross and justify pursuing the mono-ethnic church. Now, I do understand some people live in communities that may simply be one ethnicity. I understand that. Most of us don't. Most of us are living in a an increasingly multi-ethnic world. You cannot justify preaching the cross and pursuing a mono-ethnic church. Now, this is real important. This doesn't mean that Jews are supposed to become Gentiles and Gentiles are supposed to become Jews. It means everybody's supposed to become a Christian. A black person shouldn't be less proud of their blackness because they became a Christian. I can't be less than I am. A white pastor, although I did have a young black man in my church recently say, Pastor Rick, you have swag. <laughs> I told my wife, I have no idea what he just said, but I think that's a compliment. <laughs> my Hispanic brothers and sisters should not be less Latino because they have come to my church. Again, it's not colorblind. I don't see you. As a, I don't see your color. I see your color. It's beautiful. Not colorblind. Color blessed. Colossians 3.11. And this you like, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave, or free. I see your blackness. You see my whiteness. But we see the righteousness of Christ in all of us. God is choosing living stones from diverse quarries to build a new temple as a dwelling for his Holy Spirit. This is God's dream for the church. And when that dream is not embraced, the results are nightmarish. Perhaps you've heard the story they tell about Gandhi. As a student in South Africa, he became very enamored with the nonviolent message of Jesus. He went to attend a Christian church to learn more about it. He was met at the door by deacons that said, there's a church for people of your color down the road. And he wrote in his autobiography, 
me, I decided if Christianity has caste systems too, I might as well remain a Hindu. And the damage done through the centuries by this idea that we can preach across and pursue monoethnicity is incalculable. Because ethnocentrism empties the cross of its power. Here's principle number three. Our unity is the way God displays his wisdom. That the multi-ethnic church doesn't just declare that God is good. It proclaims that God is smart. And by the way, not just to people. So now we're in chapter 3. Paul hasn't changed the subject. He's on the exact same subject. Of the challenge and the beauty of the multi-ethnic church. He says, when I think of all this, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus for the benefit of you Gentiles. Assuming, by the way, that you know God gave him the special responsibility of extending his grace to you Gentiles. As I briefly wrote earlier, God himself revealed this mysterious plan to me. As you read what I've written, you will understand my insight into this plan regarding Christ. God did not reveal it to previous generations. But now by his spirit, he has revealed it to his holy apostles and prophets. And this is God's plan. Both Gentiles and Jews who believe the good news share equally in the riches inherited by God's children. Both are part of the same body. And both enjoy the promise of blessings because they belong to Christ Jesus. By God's grace and mighty power, I've been given the privilege of serving him by spreading this good news. Though I'm the least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasures available to live in Christ. I was chosen to explain to everyone this mysterious plan that God, the creator of all things, has kept secret from the beginning. God's purpose in all this was to use the church to display his wisdom in its rich variety. To all the unseen rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was his eternal plan. Which he carried out through Christ Jesus our Lord. That what God is doing in the church. Bringing together the races and the ethnicities that have been divided in hostility for centuries. God is Doing church as grad school for angels, both good and bad. God is showing the unseen world how genius he is. That word variety in your Bible, you know literally in the Greek it means multi-colored. God is showing the world, including the angels, the multi-colored wisdom of his Genius through the multicolored church. God is declaring to visible and invisible realms that Jesus has won. That the promise made to Abraham that all nations, literally all ethnic, ethnic groups, will be blessed. And that the creation that sin has corrupted will be reconciled and restored. God is showing off his genius through the multi-ethnic church. As I said before, the monoracial church is easy. The multi-ethnic 
little kid. Just give me some bread and some cheese. But as I got older, somebody put some pepperoni on that sucker. <laughs> and some green peppers and some olives and hallelujah, some breakfast bacon. And my pizza got a lot messier. And it got so much better. So did my church. I think my church is so much better. I think we witnessed to the gospel so much more powerfully than we did 10, 15, 20 years ago. It's so much messier. As a person raised in white culture, my white brothers and sisters bring to our church values that make us stronger. As whites, we were raised especially to value personal responsibility. I was taught from an early age to take ownership of my faith. And these are strengths that white culture brings to the church. My Latino brothers and sisters, and when I say Latino, I mean it. I have, I have members of my church from about over 20 nations where Spanish is the official language. So don't just think people from Mexico. But my goodness, what they bring to my church is such a blessing. They bring a passion for worship. I've got a section of Dominicans. And just don't ask them to be still. They can't do it. <laughs> they cannot be still and worship God. And they bring a fervor that blesses the whole church. My Latino brothers and sisters bring such a respect for authority. Especially the elderly. And they bless my church. My black brothers and sisters. And I don't just say my African American. Because we have a lot of people in my church that are African immigrants and first generation Americans. They bring to our church such a value of community. My black brothers and sisters always read the scriptures through the lens of the family more than white people. White people read the Bible, me and God. And, and, and people of color read the Bible, us and God. My black brothers and sisters bring to our church the capacity to lament which we don't know as whites about very much because we haven't had any reasons to lament. And I would say, too, another thing they bring that is so good. Every poll shows this. <coughs> Blacks in America have a much higher view of the inspiration of Scripture, of the authority of Scripture, of the legitimacy of Scripture. Uh, it's, it's not the black church challenging the validity of miracles. It's the white church. Because when you've lived for generations where you needed deliverance, where you couldn't call out on your power to fix your problems, you had to call on God to come and save you, you believe the miracles in the Bible. Amen. And they bring to our church a commitment to Scripture that is frankly waning in many white churches. All I'm saying is my church is a lot messier than it used to be. And I think it is so much better. But... None of this can be done apart from the empowering grace of God. So here's principle number four. The church must choose the way of spirit-empowered love. And so we finish chapter three, and we're going to read one of the most famous prayers in the Bible. For Paul is going to say, God can do abundantly more than we ask or imagine. And how do we use that verse?
whenever we're having a church building campaign. Okay? This verse is not about a building campaign. I'm not saying you can't use it. I'm saying keep it in context. What has Paul been talking about for two chapters? The challenge and glory of the multi-ethnic church. And in that context, he prays this prayer. The prayer that we're going to need to do what God has purposed for us to do. When I think of all this, I fall to my knees and pray to the Father, the creator of everything in heaven and earth. I pray that from his glorious and limited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. And that Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him. Your roots will grow down deep into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all of God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it's too great to understand fully. And then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that come from God. Now, all glory to God, who is able through his mighty power at work within us. To accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to him in the church. What kind of church? What's the church he's been talking about for two chapters? Glory to him in the church. And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What does he say? What he's saying is may you tap into the power of the Holy Spirit to experience the kind of love it's going to take to see God's dream become a reality. <laughs> I think it's significant. The longest section in, on spiritual warfare in all the Bible is at the end of this book. The book of Ephesians. Because Satan cannot stand the idea of a church without walls. So he will always try to make love for the other an option. He will always tempt us to fear the other. But the one who is in us is greater than the one who is in the world. And through his spirit, God is empowering his church to show the world what love looks like. In his church, God is creating the possibility for the church to demonstrate the unimaginable. A people who have come together and torn down walls, empowered by the kind of love that comes from following the way of a crucified Savior. So I'll say again, and tomorrow we'll talk more about what it means practically to get into the mess of a multi-ethnic church. I'm just on the shallow water of learning, but I have learned some things. But today I just want to make a point theologically. Obedience to the gospel demands that we pursue and value the multi-ethnic church. As messy as it is. It is God's dream and His purpose from the beginning. I want to close with a quick illustration and I want to tell you even as I tell it, be careful. You're going to think, if you're not careful, that you know what the point of the illustration is. So here's the illustration. Charles Evan Hughes 
was at one time the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. So when he moved to Washington to take his place on the bench, he attended and placed membership at a Baptist church. Now the church itself was quite thrilled that someone of such prestige would be one of their newest members. Now in those days, it's my understanding, you would go forward at the Baptist church to present yourself as candidate for membership. And so that particular Sunday, about 12 people went forward. The first person that went forward was a Chinese immigrant named Ah Sing. And he went forward, he went and stood to the side of the front of the auditorium. About eight or ten more people came forward to present themselves as candidates for membership. They all went and chose to stand on the other side. The last person to come was Charles Evan Hughes, the newest member of the Supreme Court. Everyone with great you know, pride watched as he walked down the aisle, and he intentionally turned, and he stood by Ossie. Now be careful. Let me tell you how many white people will hear that story. What a good man. That he would humble himself to stand by someone of lower prestige. I don't think that's how heaven saw that story. I think heaven saw that and said, oh, look at all sin. What a great, great follower of Jesus. He has endured indignity. He has been marginalized. Even the body of Christ has treated him as less than, and he has refused to give up his faith in Jesus. What an honor it should be that Charles Evan Hughes could stand by such a man as Aussie. Now that's a message the world needs. That's the message I believe only the spirit-infused church can give. And we'll look at a church like that tomorrow, church in Antioch. And I think we'll draw some very important principles about how we can pursue God's truth. So thank you for coming. You have a beautiful, blessed day.